Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Dr. Ben Stickle spoke at two important gatherings this year, the 63rd session on the Commission on the Status of Women at the United Nations in New York and the 41st Human Rights Council in Geneva, Switzerland. The Criminal Justice Administration Associate Professor is the co-author of Presentations on the Role of Law Enforcement for Women's Access to Social Protection Services, which he delivered in New York, and the role of community policing to reduce violence against women and femicide, which he delivered in Geneva. MTSU expertise on the world stage after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU Recording Industry Chair Beverly Keel was among seven inductees honored this year at the 17th Annual Source Hall of Fame Awards held August 27th at the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum in Nashville's historic Municipal Auditorium. A former music executive and journalist, Keel is also a co-founder of Change the Conversation, which aims to fix the gender imbalance within the music industry. The advocacy organization was formed in 2014 by Keel, Leslie Fram, and Tracy Gershon and funds research, mentors young women, and hosts events to allow industry experts to share their insights with the group. And one of the most prominent nursing professors in the nation has tips for MTSU's nursing faculty to help them share their knowledge. Marilyn Orman, the Thelma M. Ingalls Professor of Nursing at Duke University, recently spoke to an audience of healthcare educators in the Case and Kennedy Nursing Building. Orman's message to the nursing professors was that sharing their information and experience with the rest of the profession is vital. Crammed teaching and laboratory schedules leave little time or energy for publishing, but Orman suggested writing a little bit each day instead of trying to produce a paper all at once. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Ben, welcome back. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Tim. And the first panel discussion was the one before the U.N. Commission on the Status of Women in New York, and it was about the role of law enforcement for women's access to social protection services. Let's start out by defining the phrase social protection services. What does that mean? Well, that's a phrase that has been developed by the United Nations to address um, women's rights and issues in a large worldwide context. Um, and what the presentation was discussing is how law enforcement does in fact have a role in actually enhancing and protecting the rights of women in a variety of countries, um, clearly all around the world, looking at how law enforcement is going to be able to help women um, when there's issues of um, oppression or abuse or whatever it might be um, to actually get access to and identify the services that can help them in many cases. So Basically, what we're looking at here is policing. While we can actually absolutely have a very um, clear um, help when we arrive at a situation that's an emergency, really we have to kind of hand that off to other agencies to provide services that are continuing. And law enforcement's a key role for that, basically to identify someone who has a need and then identify the agencies, social agencies that have the help to provide to them. And making that connection between a need 
and the services that can help for them is very important to help get uh, women and really anyone out of a dangerous situation. So that's a huge part of law enforcement uh, isn't talked about very often, um, but uh, definitely an important role. And so when we talk about social protection services, how do we get people the help they need? And that could be economic help. It could be food if they need food. It could mean uh, medical help uh, for them or their children. Uh, it's not necessarily specifically limited to uh, helping in cases of domestic violence. Correct. And that would be different in every country you go to. Every country has different uh, services, different levels of them, different places uh, where you can find those services at. Um, and so how, how, do the, how does the police department help um, people find those, those services? Did you address the topic in the broad terms of how law enforcement works in various cultures and countries? Because there are a myriad of different scenarios you're talking about here. Absolutely. So in New York, we had a variety of co-presenters. And so there are perspectives from the United States, from Canada and from the U.K., um, we had members in the audience from other countries um, who asked some questions and things of that nature. But primarily, it was focused on those uh, three countries. So much of the um, address that we did was really focused on in those um, cultures, which are all very similar in, in reality compared to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, how did this particular opportunity come your way? Sure. Well, I'm involved in the International Police Executive Symposium. And that is a worldwide organization that tries to get uh, practitioners, uh, so police leaders, um, chiefs of police, things of that nature, and researchers, and bring them together to look at a lot of issues that are related to policing. And it's been around for about 30 years, and they were able to get status in the UN as a non-government organization. And so they are able to... Um, apply and attend these types of events and able to put on presentations um, in, in a side capacity. So this was an event, wasn't on the main floor of the United Nations, although that would have been very exciting. Uh, but being uh, in the UN building on a side event, there were a series of events going on. This is just one of the topics um, that this organization uh, suggested should be addressed. And I was invited by some other presenters to come and speak on it. Now, when it comes to uh, social protection services, are are there any uh, countries or cultures in which uh, women's perception of law enforcement is that they would be more of an impediment than a help? I think absolutely. I'm not really versed in this enough to identify specific countries, but I will definitely say that although sometimes, especially in the last few years, we've talked about the perception of police in the United States. Um, overall, compared to many other countries, it's actually a very good perception. Um, and in, by and large, um, most people feel they can trust the police for important um, issues. And that does not translate across into many countries around the world. And there are significant issues where uh, you would never think about calling the police or when the police arrive, it's the very last thing you would want, which is very disappointing and very uh, frustrating because it should be the opposite. It should be more like and even better than what we have in this country, that you should have the trust and capacity to say, I'm going to call the police and they're going to come and they're going to treat me fairly treat me with dignity and they're going to help me solve uh, the problem. And unfortunately, that's not the case in a lot of countries. What did you learn from uh, your fellow panelists uh, who uh, also made contributions in this panel presentation about how uh, things are in other nations? What, uh, what did they have to say that you found to be uh, enlightening? I think one of the advantages of doing something like this is exactly what you said, hearing people's different perspectives. And so it was interesting to hear some of the projects they're working on in Canada, for example. Uh, one specific um, 
kind of mini project they were working on is, you know, currently if there's some type of a dispute with a couple who lives together, the police respond and it's very difficult to force one person to leave and one person to stay. And often what happens is we take the victim, the one who's been assaulted or or whatnot, and they get them to voluntarily leave. But that's not always the easiest because you have to pack up children if you have kids or, you know, they're very difficult sometimes. And so a pilot program they're doing in Canada is trying to have the uh, the abuser be the one who leaves for a period of time. And so it was interesting to hear about that project. It was also interesting, um, you didn't quite ask this, but what I found uh, very interesting that I could contribute to some of this is a lot of the researchers were from larger cities in Canada, New York, um, the UK. And I was coming from Kentucky and Tennessee, which is far more rural. And so in some of the discussions, they were talking about how they would give access to a voucher system for the public transportation for someone to try and leave a situation. And we brought up that, you know, that isn't really possible in many of the places that I've had experience working. No doubt around the world where public transportation isn't um, like it is in New York, you know, or the UK or other places. And so um, addressing those issues, well, then how do we get people out of situations when there aren't cabs, when there isn't a train? Um, and so sometimes just those differences from country to country are very interesting. And really, um, it's enjoyable to actually address those because you have all these different perspectives who can then contribute to, you know, how we can solve some of these issues. We'll take a break right here. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For more details, visit mtsunews.com. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms, there's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking with Dr. Ben Stickle from Criminal Justice Administration. He's an associate professor who uh, was part of panel presentations in Geneva, Switzerland, and in New York at uh, entities associated with the United Nations. Uh, the second panel presentation was the one before the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, Switzerland, and it was about the role of community policing to reduce violence against women and femicide. Femicide sounds like it's a term that is of the United Nations' own derivation. How do they define it? Well, that's a good question. I'm not 100% sure on how they would define that. Um, it is a, um, I guess, can be a difficult term to define. Uh, generally, we wouldn't say that every time a woman is killed, it would be considered femicide. It would generally fall under the concept of if they were killed for the sake of their gender then we would consider it femicide. So if we were angry over the fact that someone is a woman and killed them, then that would be considered uh, femicide, um, whereas a lot of other killings are, are not. Now, you can broaden that definition to include um, things like domestic violence. Um, so where you draw that line and definition is going to vary. It's not as easy to define as matricide, which is killing your mother, or patricide, which is killing your father. It's not that specific. Right, because it's generally not 
not not every woman who's killed is generally considered a femicide. There used to be some type of uh, motive behind it that would relate to the person's gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how does community policing compare in different cultures and countries? Do all nations have the money to invest in community policing? It's a, you know, relatively uh, in terms of the broad history of law enforcement, a relatively recent concept in the United States itself. Sure. So community policing, I think, is one of those interesting concepts. You mentioned it was relatively recent, and to some degree it was. Uh, when I actually teach uh, classes here on campus, I tell my students, if you look at the history of policing, while we didn't call it community policing, what right. you saw in the early 19. 19- uh, 20s and 30s right. really was a model of community policing. Oh, that was a flat foot walking a beat. It but was. We, we don't have enough individuals in order to have a guy walk a beat anymore. So, well, we also don't have a lot of cities where that's even possible right. anymore, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so um, I think community policing is, um, we went from a lot of police in the cities, there was a lot of corruption and problem with that. We went to what we call the professional era where we started giving lots of training, lots of background. Mm-hmm. And, and that lasted up until the, the mid-80s. And then we see some issues with that. So then we bring in this concept we now call community policing. And it's the idea of putting police officers back in the streets. It's the idea that an officer should know the community. The community should know them. That both should feel comfortable exchanging information. Um, and that we should be in the community being involved as much as we can. And so... Um, You know, part of the idea for this uh, group panel presentation was how do these uh, features um, help reduce violence against women? And it kind of plays off of the one presentation we did in New York uh, a few months prior to this one. And basically the idea is if the police are approachable and oriented toward the community, then that will allow um, women to maybe have better access to them, feel more comfortable approaching them, and feel confident that they will be heard, that they will be treated fairly, and that the, the situation will be uh, hopefully resolved in whatever ways that they can. Um, so really, it's uh, kind of two of the same line, if mm-hmm. you will, the first presentation in this one, kind of looking at some of the same ideas. To answer your question fully, um, community policing is different in a lot of um, a lot of other countries. I spoke primarily about uh, the United States, and basically the argument I made is lots of lots of agencies. In fact, almost every single one will say we do community oriented policing. But when you really get down and look at what they do, mm-hmm. they really don't. And so the idea of it is great; it's something we all latch onto. But the reality is, most agencies don't or don't do it very well. And so really, this was a call for in the United States for us to actually do what we're say we're doing to do it well, and for other countries to adopt a similar concept, regardless of what they call it, but that they would actually be engaging with the community. Why the focus uh, specifically on women? Women is there a way that community policing can be especially more helpful to women uh, in the situations in which they find themselves? Is it different for men and women when you attempt to employ community policing? I don't think the actual application really should be very different. Um, I am one who really truly believes that if we train police officers in community or in policing and in uh, things like empathy um, and justice, then it really doesn't matter what your gender or your race or age or anything else about you um, because we would then see you as a human who needs some type of assistance and it's my job to make sure that that's actually done. And so generally when I teach new training, I teach from that perspective. I'm wanting baseline characteristics. This is a person you should take care of. This is a person you should treat with justice. Um, Now, along with that, you know, the specific question, is it different for women? 
I think if we can train the police to be colorblind, age-blind, gender-blind, et cetera, um, there is still some need for some of these groups to get a little extra attention because maybe it's difficult for them to come to the police. And women, especially with the history we have of police in this country and others, it may be a little more difficult for them to come in a trusting manner to the police um, in, in certain areas. Uh, if you take domestic violence, for example, isn't there a certain danger with uh, a, a police officers that if they've responded to numerous calls at a particular location with a particular couple time and time and time again, that the officer might become jaded and less empathetic? I think there's that potential. Um, it's... Um, so having been a police officer in the past, which I was, uh, it can be very difficult. Sometimes you walk into a situation, you make some decisions, whether you've been there before or not. Oh, you, you no, make, not Mrs. Johnson I know, again. right? <laughs> you make assumptions over who's wrong and who's right. And as much as you try not to do that, and this happened to me on occasion, that I, I would walk in and, and really think, oh, my goodness, I'm going to go arrest so-and-so for what they did to this person. And then I would go to their house or wherever they were at and realize that they're hurt worse and that the person I was just talking to was the one who started it. Uh, and so all of a sudden, my perspective changes. I get more information and, and I change my perspective. And again, I think that goes back to the search for justice and truth and fair treatment beyond outcomes. And uh, hopefully, if we can train individuals to do that, then regardless of what initial thoughts they might have, once they get to a situation and go, wait a second, this isn't what I thought it was, step back and say, well, now what should I do? And then take the appropriate action, regardless of whether it's against or for a man or a woman. Doesn't it also irk police officers when the woman will take the abuser back time and time and time again after he's been arrested two, three, four times? Well, sure. It's, it, there's a lot of things that are frustrating for police officers, including uh, the number of times that arrests are made. And then there's seemingly little or no justice that's actually done in the way of uh, punishments. Um, and so, sure, it's very frustrating. And um, again, it's difficult unless you've been in a situation to understand sometimes just how difficult it is to actually leave a situation. There's so many characteristics that go into that. There's uh, residence issues, there's finances, there's jobs, there's car, who's going to pay the insurance, what happens to the kids. Mm -hmm. There's tons and tons of questions. And so it makes it very difficult sometimes to make that decision, not even considering the emotional one of just physically leaving for financial and other types of security. And so um, I think, again, going back to seeing an individual, understanding what they're going through, and then the desire to help them is really what we should be focusing on. And is really often part of the focus of community policing is that we're going to see you for who you are and help you with what we can. Time for another break. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Civil War National Heritage Area is managed by MTSU Center for Historic Preservation. A partnership unit of the National Park Service, the Heritage Area tells the whole story of America's greatest challenge, offering assistance with Civil War and Reconstruction Era programs. Our projects include historic driving tours, museum exhibits, and nominations to the National Register of Historic Places. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. 
We're talking with Dr. Ben Stickle about two presentations he made as part of panels uh, before the Commission on the Status of Women at the UN in New York and the Human Rights Council in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, When you're up uh, with colleagues uh, from different parts of the world in an international setting, uh, professors from other countries right here at MTSU have told me that sometimes folks from the global south, or what used to be referred during the Cold War as the third world, kind of resent the folks from the mostly Anglo-industrialized nations kind of saying, we have all the answers, and they're looking down their nose at their fellow academics where, say, community policing doesn't mean the same thing out in the bush in Kenya as it does in even Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So uh, I'm sure you didn't pull any of that, but were you cognizant of it and conscious of it as you attempted to blend in in this milieu? I didn't actually experience any of those issues when I was at the United Nations. Um, Directly following the presentation in Geneva, I went to Belgrade, Serbia, where I presented at the International Police Executive Symposium. And that was a, a four-day conference, much smaller. There were about 30 of us. And they were from all over the country, including Africa and every continent. Um, you could you could possibly list uh, lots of different countries. And that was a very interesting experience because what it allowed was for me to sit over dinner across the table from someone who has experiences exactly like you've um, expressed and allowed us to talk about some of these issues. And so I was able to sit down with someone from uh, the Kashmir district or area, you know, Mm -hmm. and talk about the struggles that they're experiencing and how police Mm -hmm. functions. Um, And so having that cross-cultural experience on a neutral ground is extremely beneficial. There is a danger, I think, as you said, of, of thinking that somehow uh, because the United States is premier and pick something, mm-hmm. uh, that somehow we have all the answers. Um, and I do think that some of these international experiences have allowed me to see that that's not always the case. And in fact, many times um, uh, the United Kingdom seems to be a little more focused on their policing and have some things in line that we could really do a lot to study from. And conversely, we do things better than they do. And so this idea of looking at uh, policing um, across countries, not as really competitive, but being open to different experiences and ideas is probably the most beneficial and what really should be done to create a good environment and to find solutions. Because there's no doubt um, there's probably uh, some relationship between what's going on um, in in Thailand in certain areas. Uh, Spoke with several people from there um, to what's going on in rural areas of uh, Tennessee. And um, hearing different opinions is very helpful. When you're about to become a police officer and you're going to the academy for training, are you, the recruit, told anything in particular about dealing with women? Like you have to get over the notion that they're all helpless little creatures and they couldn't possibly commit violent crime because some of them obviously can and have. Or uh, other things about dealing with women uh, as either perpetrators, suspects, victims, or in any capacity uh, that inform the way you behave as you do your job. Well, it's been a few years since I went to the <laughs> academy uh, and not being uh, as familiar as I probably should be because these things, the the content changes, you know, rapidly in, mm-hmm. in police uh, training programs. Um, I would imagine there is definitely some discussion of it from a perpetrator standpoint. Uh, you're pretty well taught not to look very closely at age or gender and make a quick uh, 
judgment on that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a uh, a gun or a knife in the hand of even a 12-year-old is just as dangerous as someone who's 36. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really doesn't matter um, when there's, you know, a weapon involved or something like that. Um, but again, I think um, there probably is and should be uh, some amount taught, like I said before, of looking, understanding the perspective of a woman or someone who's younger or older toward the police. And I think that's uh, a very valuable insight to have, similar to I just spoke about the insights I gained from visiting other countries and seeing their police. And then when I come back here, it allows me to see things differently. And this is one of the um, important things I'll add that I think is a benefit of college is not talked about very often, is you end up coming to a university, you sit with people who aren't from your neighborhood, who may not be from your state, who may not be the same gender or race or ethnicity, may not have English as their first language. And it's one of the only times that everyone is forced into these groups. Because even in public schools in K through 12, you're generally in a local neighborhood, right? And the neighborhoods are very concentric. They look very much alike, mm-hmm. not all the time. Um, but when you come to university, that's all gone. And so I always encourage my students to take a look around and interact with people from other cultures and other languages and who are different than them. Because by learning, well, maybe they're not as different as I thought they were. Mm-hmm. That will help and I think pay dividends in the future. But it's very hard to measure that. And so I don't think we measure it. We don't talk about it very often. But that's one of the great things of a university is the gathering of divergent opinions. Are you going to any more international conferences in the future? Uh, yes, I'll be attending uh, one in the UK in Leeds in, uh, this next summer and uh, part of an international group. Um, they go every, every summer to a different uh, location to do some type of conference um, looking at uh, environmental criminology and crime analysis. And so how can we design a building or a structure or a university campus to reduce crime? And um, I enjoy those conferences. Usually when I go, there's another 30 or 40 people there, and there's only four or five from the United States. And so it's a great experience to spend, again, a whole week, very small, intimate conference to get to know people, make lots of contacts in other places, and see a whole other culture. Dr. Ben Stickle, thanks for being our guest. Thank you. We'll be right back. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, WISE advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. Expanding your horizons in math and science at MTSU is a one-day conference for girls, fifth graders through high school seniors, to help them discover career opportunities in science, technology, engineering, and math. MTSU chemistry professor Judith Iriarty-Gross, who directs the Women in STEM Center and EYH, shares more. We will be celebrating our 23rd MTSU EYH on September 28th. We have some exciting new workshops for the girls. Our keynote speaker is Cheryl Holdaway of Newell Brands. She is better known as the Sharpie Lady. And we have a panel of outstanding women in finance who will talk to the high school girls during our conference. We are now accepting volunteers 
to help escort the girls around campus. So teachers, parents, please let us know if you are interested in learning more about EYH by serving as a volunteer. You can contact me at eyh at mtsu.edu for more information about volunteering. That's MTSU on the record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University is produced by the university's marketing and communications office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.